0: hey this is the moment I'm Brian Koppelman. thanks for listening I've been friends with Peter Olsen since 1995 or 96 we met at the Mayfair Club which is the uh, is where David Levine and I got inspired to write rounders Olson was a legend there he was a, a great card player but also uh, had just finished uh, his uh, first novel confessions of an Ivy League bookie which is I mean barely a novel much more um, a memoir uh, though it's incredibly great. And I remember when it came out in 96, um, I couldn't believe that somebody had written a book touching on this world that I knew that I wanted to be able to write about for a long time. And um, and then I remember reading it and just being blown away by what Peter was able to capture, not really the poker world, but the world of um, bookmaking and gaming and a lot of his own story. And Peter's continued to uh, write about this demimonde in which each of us have uh, lived at, at some point uh, and his newest book uh, is his best book and it is a novel um uh although i recognize certain aspects of it of of the inspirations for the novel because we've continued to play poker together um over the years but it is a absolutely terrific novel called the only way to play it and um Peter Olson, thank you for being here. I'm thrilled that we get to talk in this uh, in this context.
1: Oh, me too. Me too. And and uh, I really appreciate that introduction. That that was that was good, man. Um, you know, I was trying to think about because um, I don't remember us. I, I mean, I remember the time that we
0: met, but I don't remember our first meeting. Do you? Well, yeah, because I, I, what I remember was you being, I think, Jonathan Schechter, if I had to guess, I think Jonathan Schechter pointed you out to me because, um, and it would have been 96 because I, actually I know that the first time I walked into the Mayfair Club was December 15th, 95. So it would have been 96 as the book was about to come out. And I remember he was like, oh, this guy wrote a book. And I already knew I wanted to write about the Mayfair Club. You know, Dave and I already started writing. So I remember being worried about it. And and he also said, you know, I didn't say this up front, but you're Norman Mailer's nephew. And I'm sure that he said that as well. And so I was like, oh, fuck, this dude's writing about this world and he's Mailer's nephew. And it's gonna, uh, you know, make it that I can't write about it. Um, and uh but then I remember liking you, you know, we liked each other right away. And then you came by when we were shooting rounders at one point and we became, you know, we started to become friends and and play sports together and, and hang out. Yeah. You know.
1: But what's funny is, I mean, <laughs> what's funny to me is that you think that, or you thought at the time that, that, you know, that my book was going to in some way interfere with you writing rounders. And the thing is that I had been thinking about writing a poker movie and, and um, but I thought that to write a poker movie, I would have to dumb it way down. And when you guys gave me the script for rounders, I was just blown away. I, I just couldn't believe that you had written about it in such a true way. And, and I thought there's, there's no way that that you can get this thing made, but you know, you did. Um, so, so I was, you know, I was, it's, uh,
0: of course. Yeah. Yes. No, of course we both, I mean, that is what, what happens. And we were also so young back then, you know, that you even think when you're young that maybe it's a zero sum game in some way, or that not poker, you know, the, 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 the movie or, or writing thing, or that someone's going to have an angle on it. When of course, you know, at our poker game, Three or four of us have written about have written about true. poker in some professional way, right? Yeah. There's so much room. Yeah, yeah. But but where I wanted to start with you is, um, and by the way, I know you play in five different poker games. I'm just talking about the game you and I have played in for years together, um, on and off. But why I want to start broadly, and it's something I've given a lot of thought to, and and you've written about endlessly. Which is why does this game have such hold on us? But both. Take it as, as, as uh, two parts, you know, as uh, they they might have said on one of the old shows. Uh, you know, both as human beings and as storytellers, can you tease it out? Like you've spent so much time teasing it out. I, you know, what is it about us as human beings that draws us to this poker table, to to, to this way we challenge ourselves? And then, what is it as storytellers that 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 we can't stop thinking about it in this professional context too, this artistic context too? Yeah. Well, I I
1: feel like in poker, every hand is its own story. I mean, in in fact, when, you know, people, when, when strategists talk about playing poker, they, they talk about what story is the guy trying to tell? What story is your opponent trying to tell? And, and that's it. I mean, it's, it's story is just like baked into the game. And, and also there's just, there's this, there's natural drama in the game. Um, there are all these incredible characters. Um, and, and their character comes through in, in how they play the game and, and is expressed. So, you know, all of that is sort of endlessly fascinating to me. Um, but it's funny that you asked me that question because I, I was going to ask you the, the exact same question. is was, what is it that you think about this game. What, what do you think is the reason we're so fascinated
0: by it? Well, um, it's a lot of what you said. Uh, Okay. If we're going to have a conversation about this, which I like the idea of doing, um, you know, I'll, I'll put it in the context of me and you. So, Poker players if they're decent even and you're a superior card player to me but I've gotten much better at poker over the time we've played poker together. True. And um uh, I remember significant hands for what for their emotional context as much as for the gameplay. Meaning I can remember moments when you and I looked at each other across a table as full you know as 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 much as you and I love each other, and we always have for whatever reason from before we were, you know what I mean? As much as we love each other, when we're at the poker table, we want to beat the shit out of each other. And But there's this warmth, right? There's all sorts of uh, complicated emotional terrain that you're traversing at the poker table all the time. And then you're trying to be really in charge of your emotional range and think lucidly. And for me, it forces me to think about nothing else, right? To be fully engaged. But I can think of moments where you smile at me, knowing my tendencies. And this is what I'm saying about getting better. And, And I now understand that the game we're playing isn't really about just the cards we happen to have at the moment. You and I are thinking about seven other moments that we've had that resemble this. And trying to figure out which versions of ourselves are playing this hand we're in right now and what that means. And so I know where you are in your life from the way you walked in the room, right? The way you're carrying your shoulders from the three words that you said to me. um, And you can feel the same from how, you know, you can tell how tired I am, how many nights I've been on set, all this stuff, right? And then um, I have nines in my hand And uh, it's bet around to you and you raise. And it comes to me and I look over at you and I know your profile as a player, you were late position. I know why you could have raised. And I have to start thinking about what my raise means or what my call means, or if I can find a fold. And the level of... uh, Poker allows me to use all of myself, as much learning as I've done, as much studying as I've done, um, I will be rewarded for it by the in these moments, right? I will be able to challenge myself fully. And like you said, I'm like, what story is Pete telling? But what story is Pete going to think I'm telling? And then distinct from what story Pete would think Jim Ortiz is telling, <laughs> um, if he were in the same spot, who's another guy we play with, right? right. And so I'm aware of all that stuff and there's something about it. And then let's say I, 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 you know, let's say you made it $50, Peter, and I then make it 200 in that spot. Yeah. I'm your, yeah, go ahead. No,
1: I mean, I, you know, if, if, if I was just trying to um, take, take the hand away from you and and you came back with a re-raise, the likelihood is I'm going to believe I'm beat there, you know, unless I think that I can, you know, that you're playing a hand like nines that way. Yes. And right. and I decide to come back over the top of you and, and raise you and, you know. I, and then
0: when you do, I know against you, like for instance, I know if I then go and put $2,000 in, it makes you think, <laughs> Yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, right. If I put all my whole stack in there and, and it's $2,000 and I fucking raise and I'm willing to. Because I'm not really going to do that against you. This is the thing, right? I'm not really going to do that against you without kings unless I do it again with nines, because I know that you're thinking I'm not doing it without kings almost all the time because I understand who I'm playing against, which is all to say that level of engagement where the world drops away and suddenly I'm looking at you and you're looking at me and we're having a conversation without really saying what we're talking. I mean, you and I sometimes will actually talk it out, but (laughs) But generally, right, we're having a conversation without saying it, and there's something about that that's magical to me, yeah. um, and that's irreplaceable. I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't know how to replicate that exact experience any other way. No, I, I don't. Th- I, I don't think there is any way to replicate that experience,
1: and you know, also for for guys like us who who had you know hopes, aspirations, dreams of of being professional athletes, I'm sure you did when you were a kid, as I did. Um, poker is, is is not only a, a way to sort of extend that competitive drive, because you can keep playing until you're, you know, 90, but it's, it's also a place where guys like us can actually compete with the very best in the world. And so, you know, that also is incredibly enticing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just, I, I, I love the game. I've loved it since I was 10 years old and, and uh, I don't know if I love it as, as much now as I used to, but
0: I still yeah. love it. And I, you know, it's, it's. Well, I wonder if that has to do with, you know, when you're playing for your, for, I mean, there's a, you know, you've gone through a period of time where you really played for your living and that I think had to change your relationship to it a little bit. No.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, it, it does and, and um, you know I mean I would never say that I was ever a professional poker player, but I was a, a semi-professional poker player in that I supplemented my income with my writing income with poker, although sometimes it was reversed and I supplemented yes. my poker income with with writing. Um, but yeah, I mean I've, I've played the game under under duress for for a long time uh where it, it you know it it definitely has been something that has helped support my family and so that does change your uh relationship with the game it you know it stops being purely a game
0: right no and and, and I yeah for me that pressure i would have to play quite differently than I mean, I know what I would have to do if I wanted to play professionally and try to support my family that way. And and I know it would be less fun. It would be less about seeing the – effect. you know, I'm, when I'm playing cards now, I'm always trying to, like, learn something. Like, I'm literally just trying to see, well, if I make this move, what's going to happen? Yeah. You know, what, can this move work? I'm, and I don't care if there are swings involved in that because I'm playing with my discretion. I'm truly playing with discretion. It's so much less than my discretionary income. I'm never playing with sort of, like, even an amount that's going to – you, you you know what I mean. I, uh, I do. Um, I do. Screw me up, and so it's totally different. I think. And and look, you've written about this amazingly in this new book, but also in many of your books. You know, in the one I forget the title of it, Peter, I'm not looking at my thing, but um, the one about the World Series of Poker. Oh, it's called uh, Take Me to the River. I mean, I love that book, yeah. and um, I mean, I wrote the introduction to it, and I but I love it. And um, and you really talk in that book about the t- some times where where. You know, it was important to you to to win. And in and in 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 Bookie you talk about it as well. Yeah. I mean, it makes its way through your work. It's it's sort of a through line in your work, is this idea. Well, part of it is, you know, what's a guy with so much potential to do so many different things doing, allowing <laughs> his life to come down to an eleven out of twelve shot? You know, to a right? I mean uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean that is,
1: you know. Uh, nobody's sort of harder on on me than than i am in asking those questions because you know i i can certainly step back from my life and 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 look and ask those hard questions about w- why have i spent so much time doing this when when i have talent in in other areas and you know and why have have i been using this as a way to escape the responsibility of that or or what you know i mean it's Th- those are
0: complicated questions. Well, that um, responsibility question is through every word you've ever written. I think. I mean, even when you're writing about Stu Unger, you're asking that question.
1: Yeah, and that—that's really the question that I wanted to deal with in this novel, um, where where a guy who is is a an artist, a painter, uh, who is supporting himself by right. playing poker, and suddenly he has a, a family to support, and and that that puts even more pressure on him and changes the relationship that much more. And I wanted to, to see, you know, what happens to, to a guy like that when things start
0: to get real, you know? Well, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 um, you draw this question out incredibly well in the novel. And I mean, we love this guy and, uh, hate the situation that he's in. And, and, um, Well, you know, I'm I'm thinking about you at Harvard and writing a short story that wins a big thing um, when you're there and 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 what you imagined your your journey was going to be because you were uh, a gambling junkie then, too. I'll say one other thing that poker does for me is I don't gamble anything else. it cured, poker sort of cured me of needing to play blackjack or craps or sports betting.
1: Yeah, I'm I don't, I'm the same way you are. I don't I don't do any of those other gambling games and never have, really.
0: Um and and I I used to, but I I don't, you know, 20 years ago, but I don't do any of it anymore. I I'm not um I have no need for it. It all takes place at the it's all it takes place at the the poker table. I was wondering if horse racing for some people has a lot of like for the people who think horse racing incredibly seriously, I wonder if it, it, it has certain aspects of what poker does for us.
1: Oh, I think it does. I mean, I, I, you know, I knew um, a guy named Jerry Brown and also Andy Byer. And, and those guys were, were serious horse players. And I think they approached it very much the way that, that we look at poker. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, one of my classmates from, from Harvard was uh, Steve Christ. Who who also approached things that way. I remember Steve Chris telling me about he had a syndicate who they were betting on pick sixes, and they were you know it was an incredible thing. It was, it was a little bit like the the slot slot syndicates where right. you know they they pick out weak machines and 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 uh, and pump them with with quarters and and you know hit the jackpot and they actually turn the odds in their favor. And that's what these guys were doing with the pick sixes. So I, I think you know, there's there's less psychological, um, less of a psychological element, and but but it's it's very much data driven and and math driven, yes. and you know, yeah.
0: Well, it's also a psychological uh, aspect because it is also about who's on the take and who isn't, and figuring that out becomes really important. Is there someone at the track who's on the take? Is someone fucking with the track itself? to make certain horses do. right. There's a lot of that stuff around the track yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. That, And
1: that's a whole other level of it.
0: Yeah. I think that is a level of it though. Certainly. I mean, in the harness game, that's completely part of it. What is it about gambling? So like you and me both don't play these other games, right. But we're both also fascinated by people willing to, I mean, you're fascinated by, uh, by people who take any kind of like big dr- risk, even if the other side of it is sort of uh, a massive loss, you know, and and so I'm I'm wondering, putting yourself back there at, at Harvard, did you know that you were gonna be fencing with these ideas for the rest of your life? Were you did you think you were gonna have a normal job? Did you think you were gonna just go become a novelist? What was what was in your head then? And and I and I have to ask too, how how much was the specter of your uncle? I know the ways in which it was positive, or I imagine the ways in which it was positive, but what were the ways in which that made it daunting?
1: Yeah, well, that's a lot to ton back there. Well, um, you're on the moment, dude. You're on the moment. <laughs> um, I knew when I was at Harvard, um, I certainly, because I, I, first of all, I, I spent my first two years undergrad at, at UC Berkeley, and I transferred to Harvard as a, as a junior. Um, right. And by the time I got to Harvard, I, I knew for certain that I was going to be a writer. Um, when I was a freshman at, at Berkeley, I um, I won a university-wide short story contest there, and and that was when I thought, oh yeah, maybe I can I can right. actually do this. Uh, so by the time I got to Harvard, I was I was I was certain of it, and everything I did at Harvard, you know, was was toward that end. And so I was on the literary magazine there, at the Harvard Advocate, and and um, and published stories there and. And had a a story of mine uh, was published in an anthology um, in which I was next to Conrad Aiken and James Agee. So right,
0: unbelievable. While you were at college, while I was in college, yeah. Yeah. So
1: so and and the thing about having Norman as my uncle was that it was both incredibly inspiring um, in the sense that he he did this thing. And and you know was one of the the most successful writers in the country, um, and and then the other side of it was was it was daunting because he cast an enormous shadow, and so I was always wondering. Well, not even wondering. I you know it seemed to me that it was it was going to be impossible to to live yes. to you know to to reach the bar he had set. Um, and and at the same time, I felt that the expectation from my mother and father, from my friends, was that it would just come easily. And and um, and the truth is, for me, no, nothing has ever come easily. Um, I, I'm I'm sort of except
0: my- hitting except hitting a forehead.
1: <laughs> um, well, you wouldn't say that if you had seen me. Play uh, Dave Raven Rab- <laughs> the other day, um, right. but um, yeah, I, I just I've always been you know in some in some ways my own worst enemy, um, and and uh, and I, I seem to to be drawn into making
0: things difficult for myself. Um, and and say say more say more about that because I know you and I used to have a lot of conversations about being blocked and stuff. And um, yeah, and I and. Sorry, sorry. To... No, say more about how you made things difficult for yourself. Yeah, well, it's I, important I, for people listening, you know,
1: I I also wanted to say that that you know I I I'm not a podcast guy, so I've been catching up on your podcast uh, the last couple of months. Yeah, which I I think it's you know it's an amazing thing you're doing here. Um, but I listened to the um to the Julia Cameron interview yes. because. Uh, back in uh, 2001, I started, was it 2001? Well, it was the early 2000s. I, I got the book. I read it. I started doing the morning pages. And um, and it had an incredible effect. Um, and so I, I ended up doing uh, three books in two years, um, which was the, the most uh, productive period of my life, and then for whatever reason, I stopped doing those morning pages. Uh, and yeah, don't stop doing them. <laughs> and and so when I listened to uh, to your your uh, Julia Cameron interview, I immediately went back, picked up the book, and started uh, doing morning pages. I've now uh, filled up uh, two notebooks. That's awesome. Um, and so, you know, I have to, I really have to thank you for that. I, I don't know what kind of effect it will have because, uh, right now I'm so, I, I had started writing another novel, uh, but I haven't worked on it since the beginning of the, the pandemic. Um, and, and, um, that's because I've been, I, I, I started this publishing company, uh, yes, pu- Publishing company. It's it's a it's a small imprint. It's called Arbitrary Press, and and uh, so far I have published three books uh, during the pandemic. But that has taken up tremendous amount of of my time, and additionally because I have a family to support, I I've been uh, I I I started um, a website uh, and hung a shingle out so to speak uh, for editing other people's. Uh, books, because in the the changing publishing world, that is now more lucrative than, for me at least, than than writing books. Right. So I've been I've been editing two books uh, for the last few months too. Um, so all yes, of that.
0: But the the morning pages will help you get to finishing your novel. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> they, they they will. I think when, when people see, oh, Pete Olson's written all these not all these books, you know, novels and nonfiction, it it some part of this must come easily to him. And so, right, because the end result, now we look back, you have done all this work and all these magazine pieces and you know, important journalism. And so, but talk about the ways in which you feel like you made it hard for yourself. The ways in which these each time it was so hard won.
1: Yeah, I it's I, I wish I wish I had better answers. Um, you know, I'm one of those guys where it's like, I, I work to a, to a goal and I, and I achieve that goal and then I let down and, right. and yeah. yeah, I, I, it's, it's thought it's, it's baffling to me why that has always happened to me. Um, but, and, you know, and, and, Maybe I'll figure it out before I'm dead.
0: I I don't know. Um, well, well, we'll talk about. So go back to talk about. You were you were there at at school. You were published with those people, and you thought, okay, this is gonna kind of roll, right? So what happened? What was it? Was it a, a difficulty? Pro- well, I know. I mean, and I remember you've told me you had difficulty producing work. So talk about the. the yeah. So talk a little bit about that. So
1: after 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 Harvard. Um, <laughs> Like another player in our in our poker game, Andy Bellin, I went to work uh, for George Plimpton at the Paris Review, became an associate editor there, the first associate ed- paid associate editor in the Paris Review's history. So I like to think I I helped those who followed me, um, yes. and and I was at that time I was I was still primarily writing short stories, and and something about. Reading the slush pile at at the review and seeing all of the 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 people who came so close but missed uh. really put me in doubt about my own work. Wow! You know, yeah, I, sure. I just I, I it was like, I am I you know am I deluding myself too? Am I am I close but no cigar? You know, I really couldn't figure it out. So. I worked there for for a year, and I got really blocked by by reading all, all of those stories. And some of them were were very good, and some of them were terrible. But it 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 just had a a paralyzing effect on me. And and at the end of a year and a half there, I decided that I was going to go out to, to Hollywood to become a screenwriter. Um, that that maybe maybe that would be. a a better a better way for me to to uh focus my how did uh
0: how did mr plimpton take that news
1: oh he was fine when george was always you know george was really easygoing. um i i love george and and you know i i had a great time working for him um and he he sent me off with uh you know with with a hug i'm sure uh yeah he also uh i mean there's a, a funny George story about about these taking these Paris Review posters to to Paris uh, that I'll tell you about sometime. But please do. I I did leave. I went out. I went out to Hollywood. I think I went out with six hundred bucks in my pocket, alone from a friend. Wow. And and um, and I spent two years out there um, trying to write screenplays not really making any headway. I did, my uncle hooked me up with Jim Toback who was making a movie. And I wound up working on that movie as Toback's assistant. Um, And during the course of that-
0: How have you never written about that? Well,
1: so during the course of that, I actually started writing a novel about that experience. And, um, and that novel, once I started working on that novel and, and Tobac, the thing with Tobac ended, I decided there was no reason for me to be out in LA anymore because I wasn't doing screenplays. So I moved back to New York and I continued working on that novel. And I worked on that novel for the next six years.
0: All right. What does that look like? You worked on that novel for six years. I mean, how did you support yourself? Were you playing poker to support yourself? No.
1: So at that time I was, I was, uh, working. You were a bookie. No, no, this is before that. I was working as a copy editor and proofreader. I worked as a copy editor at a magazine called Financial World. And I was a proofreader at Sports Illustrated. And it was on my... So I I started there. I, I guess I got back to New York. I was 24. I spent six years on the book. And the day I turned 30, by then I was seeing a therapist, and I told the therapist that I, I just I don't I don't know what to do. I'm stuck on this book. I can't seem to figure it out. I can't I can't crack it, and I'm 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 lost. And she, it was a great thing. She gave me permission to let it go. What, right? And I did, and that was that was incredibly liberating. Um, you know, like many writers, i I, I was I I've always been. Um, I mean, not not like you, because I I don't think you're you're you know anything near the degree of tortured that I am when I'm, when I'm trying to write. Um, But I always, I almost always have been. And um, so, so it was a real relief. And I started thinking about what else I could do. And as I said, I was working as a proofreader at at Sports Illustrated. And um, my, my partner, we worked in teams. My partner was this, uh, another writer, a woman named, uh, Beverly D'Onofrio, uh, who you may uh, know, she wrote a memoir called "Riding in Cars with Boys," that was yeah. later turned into a movie. Yeah. Um, but at at that time, she like like me was was kind of lost, and um, we would read these pieces by the, the guys at Sports Illustrated. We were proofreading them, and I I was like gee, I could, I could write these things. So I I did. I, I wrote an essay, uh, a personal essay, because they had the front of the book and the back of the book stuff. And I submitted it. And next thing I knew, they had sent me a check and they published the piece. And that sort of began the next phase of my writing life where I became a magazine writer. And by, I guess by the time two years passed, I felt like I was doing well enough in that that I could stop doing everything else. Um, and so I, I became a full-time magazine
0: writer. But that was, and, yeah, that was also when that was possible, where there were enough magazines. Exactly. But if you were good at it, you could, and you made relationships with the editors, they would keep you in the, you could work. That's right, that's right. The, the problem with it was
1: that a lot of the the stuff that I was doing was not satisfying on a on a personal level, you know. It was it was a paycheck. Um, I was doing profiles of people, um, but they just the magazine writing after a while, and I did it for for a fair amount of time, uh, became a grind. And I also found that when I was doing it. I couldn't get my own creative work uh-huh. done. And the reason I couldn't get it done is because it I mean I'd always had I'd always had a conflict the the art and art versus com- commerce conflict. But once I started getting paid for my writing, that conflict became even even more extreme. And so to to work on things where I wasn't getting paid, I felt I felt like I don't know. I mean, I should have been making time for myself.
0: I should have recognized that that was for me, but I I didn't. Right. And 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 I I want to speak to the thing you said about me being tortured or not. I mean, the truth is, the real truth is, I'm utterly tortured. If I didn't do the morning pages and meditation, um, and like take long walks, like I'm the worst. I can't work. You know, that's why I'm always. Uh, The reason I found all these ways to not be blocked is because my natural propensity is to be perfectionist and think that I suck and not produce work. And so I found ways to trick myself into doing the work. And that's by doing the morning pages. That frees me to then somehow it works like magic and allows me to produce pages. And then, you know, you get craft over enough time that, you know, well, if I just get pages out, I'll be able to rewrite it well enough that it'll be something. Um, but that's also why I do things like I did stand-up comedy, and that's why I write songs, because it all gets me to try, you know, anytime I'm trying something scary and hard, I'm getting some kind of visceral um I'm getting some kind of strength out of it. Uh, because I'm defeating the fear and I'm defeating the insanity by producing some work when even when it seems so hard. So yeah, I'm, 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 uh, I mean, there are days, Peter, where I'm, I'm going out of my mind too. It's just, I think I'm, i I found a way to trick myself into actualizing it maybe sooner than you did, you know? Yeah. Well, I, you know,
1: and of course, um, for, for you and, and I, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but I'm sure having Dave as a partner
0: also helped get you. To work. It's everything. Yeah. No, it's everything. Yeah. Of course. Of course I have to turn I, I can't, I can't not give my pages to Dave if Dave's gonna give his pages to me. Yeah, 100 percent And that but that's why Solitary Man took me four fucking years, and I had to really turn myself into someone who could find a way to produce work on his own. Yeah. You know, because I had to write that one myself. And it was like really difficult. But yes, of course, having the partner helped. And look, you know, you're in a situation where your wife is such a good writer and also able to do the work. I'm sure that that creates a fascinating dynamic sometimes too, because whether she may beat herself up and she's a perfectionist also, but, but if you tell Alice O'Neill, if Alice O'Neill tells you she's going to deliver something in three weeks, she's going to fucking deliver that thing in three weeks. Yeah. She's
1: incredible. I mean, you know, I'm in awe of her, of her work ethic and her ability just to, to get shit done. Um,
0: Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, I must make it even worse in a way for you when you're like beating your head against the wall uh and you see that she's just typing away.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely does. And and you know, and then the other aspect of it is that um the you know, since since Eden was born, in in many ways, I mean she's an incredible mother, but but I've been sort of more on the house husband track. And yes. and because she has been the, you know, she's been more of a breadwinner in this in this household well, than I have. And
0: yeah, she's a highly success she is also a highly successful writer. That's so, right. Yeah, that's right.
1: right. That's right. Which by the way, I mean, you know, thanks thanks to, to to you guys, because when so Alice was was an actress when I first met her and she was just beginning to transition into writing plays. And and in fact, the first time I ever saw her was she was performing a one woman show. Um, that she had written, and and then when she did what was actually her second screenplay, which was um, back in two thousand five or six, yes, I I wanted to help her get an agent, so I sent it to you guys, and and a week went by, and then I got an email. I don't know if it was from you or Dave. I can't remember, but it said it said, you know we love this script. So, and I don't know if you know, but we're producing movies now and we would like to produce this movie. So that was, you know, that was the sort of the beginning of.
0: Yeah. And, and then we did help her get an agent and and all that stuff. And we haven't gotten that movie off the ground, but then obviously we hired her and Alice has written, I don't know, seven or eight episodes of billions. I think seven episodes, yeah. maybe a billion. And, um, and has just been, uh, you know, was invaluable to us on, on the show. She's such a terrific writer. But, uh, you know, she, as I say, she's someone who, when she says she's going to write something, it gets written. And so that must be, you know, I can just imagine the dynamics around that um, uh, at, at home. But so, Peter, how did you then decide, okay... Like because you've told me this great trick you came up with, and I, I remember this because I always grab onto any hacks to yeah help break the block. And I remember when you finally decided to you were gonna write confessions of an Ivy League bookie. Yeah. Because you because of what happened with the novel, and then other things you tried to write where you defeated yourself by going back to the beginning and picking it apart and thinking it wasn't good enough and rewriting. Talk about when you decided to write that book, how you decided to write it, and then what you did to trick yourself into finishing
1: it. Yeah, so well, the thing about Confessions is that having failed several times to to finish novels, um, I was, I, I knew in a way, I knew that Confessions was was my last gasp. That that if I didn't do it this time. I was, I was done. I was going to, you know, I was going to find something else to do with my life.
0: You mean if you weren't able to make yourself finish a book?
1: Yeah, it was, it was absolutely crucial. It, you know, I was, I was drowning and, and I was drowning in, in every way imaginable. And I'd also just spent a year working as a bookie and, you know, and I saw that my life could go that way. And so I was, there was a a level of desperation that I had never felt before. Like I, I have to get, I have to get it together. And so the deal I made with myself was that as I finished pages, I was not going to read them. I was going to stick them in a drawer and I was going to keep sticking them in a drawer until I had finished the book. And, and I did that.
0: I never didn't you make them discreet? Didn't you? I remember you told me once you made like discrete folders, so it was like chapter one, and you said you'd never look back at chapter one once you put it in its folder. That's or right.
1: Something. That's right. Yeah. So while I was actually working on the chapter, of course, I could, I could go back, yes. but I, 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 but mostly it was all about forward momentum. Just get it done, and and I did. You know, I wrote that book in a year, um, and and that, by the way, was when I first. Started um, so it was right after uh, I had spent a year as a bookie. I had some disposable income, and I started playing at the Mayfair. And and I, I I thought I found a way to make my life work because I was doing very well at the Mayfair. So I was playing at night. I would I would go there at whatever time and play until. Two or three in the morning, and then I would sleep until 10, and I would wake up and I would write, and then I would go back to the club. And, yes. and that became a, a working model of, of how to be a writer for me uh, at that point. Then of course, when I finished Confessions, you know, I I was actually trying to th- think about like what happened to the to the to the 10 years following that until my next book. And what happened was that in the immediate aftermath of that, I, I sold the movie rights to the book right. and I got hired to write the screenplay. And I went through numerous drafts of the screenplay first for, for Paramount and then for, um, uh, let's see. Well, I guess first uh, somebody else was hired to write the screenplay. But then, when that didn't work out, that was a castle rock. Then, then I came in, and then I did it again for Mace Newfeld at Paramount. And so, you know, I mean, years went by, and I couldn't crack the screenplay. Um, and and no one ever has actually. And 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 a number of people have tried. I mean, that book is has been. It's and, really
0: hard to make that booky thing. It's it's really hard to make the. I mean, David and I have not that one. We but we've written about the. Um, bookie life, and there are challenges with it. There's something um, about the waiting that's required. The waiting that makes it very difficult. Yeah, I
1: mean, uh, yeah, when I think about it now, I actually think that it, it lends itself
0: to a to a television show. Um, that you know, I, I yeah, because they, well, the well, because the great part of the book, the bookie stuff's amazing, and I still remember Monkey. I still remember all the characters and all that stuff. You know, and I, the last time I read that book was 15 years ago. Um, but I still remember the book really well because so much of it is about the characters. um, Exactly. The character's emotional life, their character's love life, the character trying to the character reckoning with this feeling that he's not grabbing on to the best things that are offered to him in life and trying to figure out why. And right. And, 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 and that's hard for the movie
1: it's really hard as a movie. And also, I mean, as a, as a, as a TV show, it would really be an ensemble piece. And, you know, I sort of think of it, I, you know, I think of shows like Barney Miller and, you know, how is that different? It's a bunch of cops sitting in a room.
0: Um, yes. Well, yeah, it, it look, you could do it and you should maybe get the book back and, 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 and try to do it. But, but also I think those years, or I wonder, you know, you were, you had gotten the monkey off your back in a way you'd written a book, people liked the book. Um, it was written about nicely. It did well, you know, it wasn't a massive bestseller, but like it was a success, you know, that was a successful outing. Yeah. And, and then you kind of, you know, it kind of puts you in a place where it's like, okay, this thing that has tortured me for such a long time, I've done it now. And I'm sh- and I, you know, um, I just remember a lot of phone calls with you during that period of time or getting together and, and you just talking about, feeling again, like how hard it is to make progress, but knowing you'd already done that, you know, done that, done that thing. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, when I look back on that period, I wish because I did have momentum. I had, I had, you know, I, I felt confident. I felt like I could do it. And, and if, if I had it to do over again, I would start writing another book. I would have started writing another book immediately, you know, instead of getting, doing the the screen the screenplay was really a distraction and it sort of kept me immersed in in the same material instead of moving on and developing and you know and so that that in a way was i i look at that as i mean i understand why i did it it was appealing but it it also was was self-sabotaging in a way
0: What kind of internal work did you consciously do? So the morning pages, but what else did you consciously do to enable yourself in that period? So you had this fallow moment. What else did you do to sort of, or what did you do uh, to, to allow yourself then? Because as you say, you had this burst of writing a bunch of books, but not only that, you've now been productive. Like um, you've been able to, uh actualize what you wanted to do so you decided you know this new book was almost published by um an established publisher you, you, there were some issues you then decide you're going to start a publishing company to publish it you actualize that you didn't just talk about it or beat yourself up but you did it you wrote this book and the book's excellent you know i mean i i uh, it's it's an outstanding uh, a novel and and so but what what did you do that allowed yourself to 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 be able to do the work f- finally?
1: Well, it, it wasn't easy. I mean, this book took me a number of years to do. Um, and, you know, as I say, it, it coincides, I started it um, not that long. Uh, after, I mean, Eden was probably three or four when I when I started writing the book. And then I, I, I stopped and I started and i stopped and i started and it wasn't until um, oh i don't know 4 or 5 years ago when i when i realized i mean the thing is that that the publishing world has changed so much that there was a brief period after i had that flurry of books and and in, in a period of 3 and a period two three books in 2 years yeah. where i where i thought I, I can actually do this as a career. I can. I, I'm. I'm. I've finally reached that place where, where I am now able to just write one book after another.
0: It was the boxing book, um, "Take Me to the River," and the Stewongram. That's right. right. Those three books. Yeah, those yeah. three
1: books. And and um, so, but after "Take Me to the River," um, "Take Me to the River." came out at a a bad time. The the publishing company did not do a good job with it. And it was right at the time that publishing companies started to be very aware. This thing called Bookscan started, and they were very aware of how many copies a book actually sold in in a way that they hadn't been uh, before that. And so I understood that it was going to be very important for my next book to be commercial, and so I I spent two years after that spinning my wheels, trying to come up with the book that was going to be
0: a bestseller. Mm. And boy, that's a difficult road to hoe, man. That you, is a difficult road to hoe. It
1: sure is, and it's and it was you know it was the worst possible road for me to go down because that's never where my work has come from. It's never. no, of
0: course not. Yeah. I
1: mean, it's always come out of a place of, you know, this is what, this is what I want to write about. This is what I'm passionate about. And so I was, I was trying to outthink it and, and, and I didn't do a good job of it. And I, I lost a couple of years and then I, and then I had to, you know, and I felt incredible pressure at that point. I was playing poker, um, and I had to do something to to change it up, and I, I got a job, believe it or not, as the president. I you know this, but as the president of the um, of, of the United States Poker Federation, um, working with uh, with uh, Tony Holden and Jim McManus and and a guy named Patrick Nally, who was. Uh, called the the founding father of, self, of sports marketing but in fact was right. kind of a con man. anyway we did that for for a couple of years and then the thing fell apart but so I, I lost you know two more years and and um, and so finally when I when I got back to to writing and I, I, I came with the understanding that working on this book, was purely going to be a labor of love and right. that I was going to have to fit it in the way, I, you know, when I had started my writing career, um, there's, there's a, a wonderful piece. I don't know if you know this piece by Ted Solitaroff called writing in the cold. I do not know it, but I'll read it. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal piece. Um, and he talks about, um, cause he was the editor of American review. And He talks about all the talented young writers he published there, and the rate of attrition because most of them couldn't afford to stick with it, um, and yep. or, and or, or just couldn't. Um, and the the key he said is 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 durability. Um, you know how one deals with uncertainty and disappointment, um, both from without but also from within. Um, and, and so, so he says that if you are going to be a, a, a writer, you just have to do whatever it takes to support yourself in that. And that means taking jobs that aren't going to interfere with your creative energy. Yes. And so I felt like I was back in, in that place. And, and so and as it turns out, the job that the only thing that I that I'm qualified to do involves words, you know, involves either writing or editing. Um, because, as you know, I mean, I've also been a magazine editor at various yeah, points. Yeah, of course. Um, you wrote a terrific piece for me when I was at this magazine called Unlimited about I Joe Be- Joe Beningo, Which it's not surprising that you are now doing this because <laughs> radio. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um,
0: uh, you know, clearly, you know, you, you, uh, there was something you always. Yeah, something compelling about it. No, no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah. No doubt, something compelling about it to me. But,
1: yeah. I mean, so, so anyway, I I, you know, I started doing, doing this editing and I have, I've managed to find some balance with it, but it's still, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to balance the kind of energy that's required to edit someone else's book and at the same time, write my own.
0: Walk me through the decision process to publish this new book, The Only Way to Play It, uh, uh, yourself through your own uh, imprint.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, and I listened to your your conversation with, with Darren Strauss, and you were talking about the gatekeepers yes. in that conversation. And the gatekeepers now, the, the whole – Publishing industry has been turned upside down, uh, but it is it's it's both harder and less lucrative to for midlist writers to yes. to publish, um, and particularly for for novels. Uh, novels are just an incredibly hard sell right now.
0: And, and especially not strictly genre novels, which your novel is not, even though it's a gambling book. It's not a genre novel. That's
1: right. Especially not genre novels, and and also, um, you know, novels that are that are not that are that are dealing with, you know, the concerns of of uh, middle aged, you know, uh, cisgendered white man. <laughs> I mean. Um, it's it's you know it's just not it's not our time now and and uh, so so for me it was it was that was I met that resistance in the publishing world and I did finally find um, an indie publisher who was going to publish it uh, but that deal fell apart and then I I found another indie publisher who was going to publish it but. The, the editor, not the publisher, said to me, he actually thought I would do better and have more control over the material if I published it myself. Um, and so I decided to, to explore that. And the funny thing is that to, to uh, experiment, I published, uh, my, my then 13-year-old daughter wrote a novel, Eden, um, yes. and I decided that I was going to publish her book. That it would be the canary in the coal mine, and so, so I did that. I learned a lot publishing her book about you know all the pitfalls and and the things that you have to do. It was it's a real you know there's a there's a learning curve, um, but I I really I've learned a lot now. And as I say, I've, I'm publishing. Uh, I'm reissuing Confessions under a new title. Um, the title I wanted What's to. What title? So it's it's now called The Vig, uh, subtitled Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie. But The Vig was what I wanted to call it back in in '96. Uh, but my publisher wouldn't let me. She she persuaded me that Confessions was a better selling title. She's probably right.
0: But Did you write a new introduction for it or something? I wrote
1: an afterword, a new afterword. Oh, that's
0: great. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. That's great. So when's that coming out?
1: So that's coming out the exact same day as the novel, which is this Tuesday. Um, you know, one of, one of my favorite um, things in, in publishing was that Tom Wolfe, um, there was, I, I can't remember now the, the, the context of it, but he published two books on the same day. And there was an announcement with, in typical Tom Wolf style with lots of yeah. exclamation marks. Tom Wolf is publishing two, two books on the same day. And I thought, that is so cool. I'd love to do that. So,
0: you know, here, now I can do it. Um, That's fantastic. So wait, what's your website for the publishing company where people can go to see what you so,
1: so I have a website. It's just my name. It's Peteralson.com. And Arbitrary Press is there on a tab. Um, I will at some point construct a a, web, a standalone website for it, but I haven't done that yet. Um, but that's that's where to go.
0: And then the books are available on Amazon as well. Right? That's
1: right. So the books uh, and and the novel is uh, take um, the only way to play it is available in many forms. So it's it's an e book, it's a paperback, it's a hardcover, and an audio book.
0: And and all available at Amazon.com, or they can find it by going to Arbitrary Press through your through through PeterAlson.com. Right.
1: Or and I, I always like to encourage people to to buy from indie bookstores, so they can also go to Bookshop.org.
0: Great. So the book's also in. Is the book also going to be in some independent bookstores?
1: Uh, I hope so, but that'll you know, <laughs> I'm I'm a one man band, so so I am the book salesman too. So I'll have to make that happen
0: all right we'll go and 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 as a salesman go and, and and uh uh do the bidding um of the author Pete olson as you know i could talk to you forever um our time is up here i i do uh i encourage everyone who listens to the podcast go support go read this book but not because peter's a great guy but because he's a great writer and this book is um it's the definitive modern poker novel and, and really, really worth your time for, for that reason. It's also about fatherhood and it's also about um, finding your way through difficult circumstance. So Peter Olson, thanks for being here, my friend. Thank you. Brian. Uh, you can find Peter at PeterOlson.com. You can find me at Brian Koppelman uh, on Twitter. You can uh, email me at themomitbk at gmail.com. Uh, and um, I will uh, see you all next time. Thanks for listening.